Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. One of the key traits of classic American Deep House is creating introspective and personal moods that move the listener to look within themselves in a life-affirming way. When Fred P released the album Reactions of Light as Black Jazz Consortium in 2007, it was clear he had a special gift in this department. When DJs and dancers liked his work, they tended to fall for it hard. Many seemed to develop an affinity with this producer who'd so clearly put his heart into his work. Ever since, that signature Fred P feeling has become a staple of house and techno. He's made the most of his success by evolving his sound with the suitably titled Evolution of Light album, which draws a link to his debut that only shows how far he's come in the past decade. He spoke to Carlos Hawthorne late last year about the realizations, experiences, and philosophies that have made him the artist he is today. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Fred P is up next. Thanks a lot for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, you said you were feeling a little bit dazed from the weekend. Yeah, I just uh, came back from a North American tour that continued into Europe. So it was like one day of maybe a few hours sleep and then back on the road for three more countries. Is that a kind of normal kind of thing you do or is it you try and avoid that if possible? Oh, no. Well, the thing is... Um, it's sporadic. It happens like that at times. Sometimes it's a little bit more relaxed, but it just so happens at this point that, yeah, it was a bit of a hectic schedule. And I mean, when you're kind of tired and you've been on the road for a, for a while, how does that affect the way you play? Does it maybe it play, makes you play better? It actually does. Really? Yeah. I've heard that before, right? Yeah, Paris was insane. Like La Machine, oh my goodness. Uh, in fact, I'm not like super known for playing disco, but I played like an hour of disco and it was crazy, man. So what would you kind of put that down to in terms of like playing better when you're kind of just more worn out? I think it's more of me not like being in super control, just letting the music have its way because that's the thing that's motivating me, you know? Right, you kind of feel more raw and emotional and just... Yeah, yeah. And the people, the people really really had they were really dialed in and then a lot of my friends were in town and they showed up so it was like nice to have that support and and it all lent to the moment nice you get to have a break this weekend or back on the road oh no i'm definitely on a break this weekend <laughs> nice yeah so yeah i mean we're here in berlin you've been living here for how long now 
I think now it's going on uh, eight years. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Fully settled. Totally. I got yeah. furniture and everything. <laughs> I read that you kind of moved because, you know, you were just playing so much in Europe. It just made sense to be here. But nevertheless, kind of you moved reluctantly. Well, I had one foot in the States. And even though I, I think I was in denial because I spent more time in Europe than I did in America. And it seemed as the years went by, there was less and less for me to do in America. And then there were less and less things keeping me coming back. And now it's to the point where I might go there twice a year to do some shows, and that's about it. So it was a case of your music just, I mean, you just weren't getting the bookings, it just wasn't as big over there, what was... Well, I mean, the scene is a little bit different, and there's that old saying where, you know, you, you, you if you are successful, usually it happens somewhere else, and then where you're from will accept you. It seems like, um, like with the exception of New York, America is reluctantly accepting me as being, you know, an international artists but it's cool because i love where i'm at nice yeah you've said that it's uh it's the best decision you've ever made oh yeah well i think in to a certain degree it was kind of made for me because this circumstances i mean to look at it for what it is every time i would go back to america to like say resume whatever life i had there I would be immediately called back to Europe to do like another run of dates. And it went from a couple of weeks to a month to two months to three months. And then I had to change my passport. So it's like, you know, right. Universe saying, hey, dude, look at this and take it a little more seriously. And of course, the more you play in Europe, the more your profile grows over there. So kind of the more t time you're going to have to spend over there. So it's just kind of inevitable. Yeah. It, and it, uh, I honestly would have to say I kind of grew into it because, you know, I, I mean, it was all new back then. And then I would say around 2012 when I got rid of, like, the possessions that I didn't really need, that uh, it all hit home where it's like, yeah, man, I'm changing my passport and I got to look for a place to live and <laughs> yeah. all of these things, you know. Um, was moving to Berlin... The first time you'd been a professional musician, like, was that the switch or had you been doing that in New York? Mm, I would say that would be somewhere near 2009, because before okay. that, I was like temping and doing things on my own. It wasn't so much professional. I was kind of like, you know, just doing stuff. It, it's been that way from the 90s till about then. Nice. And did you come here... Was there any community you could come here? I know there are a few kind of New York artists living over here. Yeah, well, yeah, there were uh, 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 a few, definitely, from New York and other places, Detroit, Chicago, that uh, I linked up with. And uh, one of my earliest um, uh, connections was with TiVo Howard. He actually, like, showed me around Berlin, like, took me on a train and took me places and showed me, like, yo, there's KFC over there, and <laughs> there's the Burt Church over there, you know, that sort of thing. Nice. It was cool. It's like, he, he really took me under his wing. I appreciated that ever since. And what is it that's um, worked so well for you living here? Well, I'm able to make music, like, 
really like my music, like, you know, not music that I have to make, but the music I want to make, that's priceless. And is that just in kind of in a financial sense? Like you're just simply, the rent, the cost of living is just low enough that you're afforded that freedom or is there, or is it something else? Well, the, I would say in comparison to New York, there's only other place I can compare it to. I would say the standard of living is different. Therefore, the cost of living is different. And I live a particularly simple lifestyle. Like, literally, all I do is make music all day. You know, I go to the supermarket, buy groceries, I come back and continue to make music, and then I go away on the weekend. So it works out where I'm able to maintain that is a bit of a sustainable lifestyle. And to compare it to New York, that would be impossible. For sure. Do you feel like, would you say you live a solitary life? Yeah, I would say so. I'm a very um, quiet person. Um, even considering uh, what I do for a living, right. my neighbors have no clue I'm in the building. Right. <laughs> because I do everything so quietly. And it works out because I'm in a neighborhood where it's really, really quiet. So when I come back from the weekend and my ears are going crazy, I get the chance to level out. So yeah, solitary is, I like peaceful things. Nice. Then of course you spend your weekends in a hectic environment. So it's kind of nice balance. Well, see, that's where the balance is. Right. Because I love that too. And I get it all out in these tremendous bursts of energy, you know? So it's really cool. Nice. Yeah, let's talk about your kind of music making because, as you said, you're extremely dedicated, spending 10 to 12 hours a day. How do you characterize your relationship with making music? Is it is it something you simply have to do every day? Is it it's just a way of life? Yeah, I would definitely call it a way of life. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's something I have to do. I have to. Life doesn't work right if I don't. And I'm fascinated by that. Is that a kind of... Exactly, you're not working... To, of course, there are projects in mind, but I'm sure you make more music than you could probably ever release. Yeah, that's, that's a difficult one right there because I have to find ways to release music these days. In the early years, it was a little bit easier because I was able to work with other companies and I could like do as many remixes as I want and release as many records as I, I would like because, you know, I'm relatively new and so on. But these days, reaching a certain level, you kind of have to pull back because now a release has a lot more weight than it used to. Right. So, yeah, I have to like use some ingenuity to get these things out. And that's where the kind of aliases, the exactly. labels and that come in. So, I mean, you're waking up. Are you, when you make music, are you kind of translating how you feel? Is it is it a very cathartic process? In my opinion, I view, like, music as a form of communication. And the science of how sound works is based on energy. So me being first the being, experiencing life, then being an artist, translating those experiences, it's a matter of taking the information that I experience, like, you know, just my reality, and then translating that into a term that is 
relative to people's ear through my medium, which is music. And that's a daily process. I wake up in the morning, I do my morning routine, and then I sit in a chair and try to go through all of that information and turn it into something people can take in and get something from. Nice. What's your What's your morning routine? Uh, wake up, take a shower, have a cup of coffee, go up to the deck and, you know, just clear my head, organize my thoughts. Like, if there isn't anything pressing to do, like, you know, a meeting or, you know, I have to, an appointment or whatever, then it's, okay, where did I leave off last night and how do I start today? That's usually the process and takes like maybe hour, hour and a half. Nice. And are you making a similar amount of music every day? Or does it vary? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, I don't count. I just do things. And sometimes those things go all the way to a conclusion. Sometimes it just remains a sketch. But usually by the end of the week, I can go back and there's either something clearly there or a lot of food for thought. So I think this, uh, yeah, this relationship with production is quite rare i think you know it's i'd compare it to the way picasso famously just endlessly painted you know um you know not to not to <laughs> blow you up too much but Dude, just, yeah. <laughs> just in terms of the the approach is, is exactly the same he he didn't paint to make money he didn't paint for any material gain even though that came he just did it because that's what he did he woke up and that is how he expressed himself how he lived his life so it just sounds very similar in terms of you just have to do it it's not it's not a choice it's not oh god i better get back in the studio because of this or that it's just i'm always there yeah that well that's the thing it's like if you are an artist there's really no rule but I think the bedrock that any artist worth his salt is um, bound to is being true to themselves. And that's like how you feel. More than anything else, I, I love the process of creating and giving myself up to that process. Because what comes out ultimately will be something substantial. Sure. Let's talk about the new album. New Black Jazz Consortium album, Evolution of Light. I heard you say that the album is about songs, not tracks. I wonder if you could just go into that a little bit. I feel, uh, you know, with um, most of my music, it's, you know, over the years, the term track is more or less this thing that comes and goes. And that's cool if that is a way of defining a moment, that's fine. However, um, when I look back at the first uh, Black Jazz Consortium album, Reactions of Light, that was definitely the truth for that because I was attempting to do something that I didn't know how to do. Right. And the truth of that was that project. And when I look back at it years later, I'm like, wow, there's no way to truly answer that without saying what it is. So when this album came about, I basically said to myself, no matter what, I have to be true to myself and tell the truth about what this process is. And the process is an evolution because so much has happened between then and now. Right. I've learned so much. 
Um, I have become a bit better at certain processes, and um, some things have remained somewhat similar to the beginning, but I'm definitely more in the way of beginning, middle, and end, which most songs have. Right. And this album reflects that. The first album didn't really have that kind of narrative. It was just kind of just this raw expression. And this is more like, it's, it's, it's expression, not as raw, a bit more arranged, a bit more musical, a lot more, um, let's say, as far as like engineering is done much better. And um, there is a consistent narrative that changes throughout. So it's more of a complete story. So when I say it's more about songs, it's like you go from one place at the beginning and then you can clearly feel the transitions to other areas before you get to the end. And then when you get to the end, it's like full circle. And yeah, to me, that's how a long player should work. Right. Well, interesting you said that the first album, you were kind of doing something that you didn't yet know how to do or trying. Um, but you said with this one, you've also felt out of your depth because you were, why Why did you feel like that? Well, for one, um, I've done collaborations before, but never with musicians, like session musicians and stuff. So that's one level, because I had to learn that it, that's a particular type of relationship, and there's a particular protocol going about doing these sorts of sessions and then also to going out of my comfort zone adding a couple new vocalists to the mix because i usually work with the same people all the time and the same thing applies this is like a protocol to how to do that and these are all processes that i learned along the way were you bringing the musicians into your studio were you guys able to interact together or was it more of a in some cases, yes, but in the majority of the cases, no. Or, well, I'd say, no, it was a little balanced. I would say um, more blessings and another path. Uh, those songs were done in a studio with the musicians in Brazil. Right. And um, when it came down to Sacred Sun... And a lot of the stuff that Slick Tim, a.k.a. Gary Gritness, appeared on, that was mostly done online because, you know, he's in France and I'm here and it's a lot easier just to go back and forth. And um, same thing with Sacred Sun. It was, um, you know, Bruno's in Sao Paulo, so it was easier to do that that way. Salvador as well, which she just totally went insane on. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we should say that the album has a strong Brazilian theme. Mm. How did that come about? Where did your love of Brazilian music come from? Uh, Brazil has a very rich music culture that lends itself to so many different forms. Is They have their own unique form, but then also their own take on jazz, blues, etc., folk music as well. When I hear those tones, it resonates with me on a level that I can totally identify with i was touring there quite a bit last year over the years i've been there like a lot and realized that i hadn't wrote a single track 
every time I was there, which was kind of funny because usually when I'm away from home that long, I usually work on something because it's going like way out of my normal routine. Oh. But um, the last time I was there, I was like, you know what? Let me make this happen because I can't sit here and not <laughs> do something. And got in touch with um, my guy, Keitano, who put me in contact with all the musicians who appeared on those songs. And history, in my opinion, history was made because that opened up a whole new door for me uh, creatively and has opened my mind to the possibilities of collaborating, orchestrating, arranging, things like that. Wow, okay. So this is something you'd like to build on. Oh, absolutely. But I, I, I see the possibilities for so many different things. Wow, okay, nice. Potential for a kind of band, perhaps? Yeah, totally. Wow, nice. I wanted to talk about kind of, you know, your big philosophy is this kind of just staying true to yourself. Very simple, but very powerful. And I just wondered, it kind of just runs through everything you do. You know, you kind of you exude it. I mean, where does it originate from? When did you first start thinking about making music and life in general this way? As far as making music goes, I would have to say I started when I was a kid because I used to bang on pots and pans and stuff. And... um you know, try to emulate drummers on records and listen to the radio all the time, all the way through to, like, making pause tapes and then overdubs and all types of weird stuff that never left. It was always the most comforting thing. So music has been, like, a very consistent thing in my life since very early. You know, there's a couple of ways to approach existence and is the way that comes natural to you, and then there's the ways that you adopt to to be accepted or whatever. Um, coming from where I come from, uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, I didn't really have a choice of adaptation because whether I adapt it or not, I'm still me. So figuring that out early, I'm like, well, I might as well just be me and not try to adapt, just do what works in reference to how my mind works. Now, that's not the easiest way of getting along, but you can live with yourself a lot better when you're expressing things because you know it's your truth, you know? And that's where that really, like, comes from. I didn't really have that much of a choice. And then when it came down to artistic endeavors... It's very difficult to copy an original and then, like, try to be the original you copied. It's, mm. it's, it's like, right. you know? So it's so much better to be inspired and then try to find your own expression of that inspiration, you know, which is very different. Because the person that, or the artist or the experience, whatever it is, that inspires you, the purpose of it is to literally turn you on to yourself. Like, where did that feeling come from? And then try to explore the mechanism that makes those feelings happen. And that opens a whole different world of thought. So, yeah, I mean, for, for better or worse, if your expression is genuine, it's going to be a benefit to somebody somewhere. Well, it's interesting you talk about kind of, yeah, the early years in New York and 
this philosophy of staying true because you grew up uh, around an amazing era for hip hop in particular, where I imagine you know that's the kind of guiding principle of of a lot of kind of hip hop is just like being yourself, staying true. Um, you kind of you know you hear rappers say that a lot. What was it like being in the kind of heart of that hip hop scene back then? Um, well, I, I was lucky because I. I mean, I'm a kid. I don't know nothing about nothing. And then one day, you hear Planet Rock on the radio, and life changes forever. It's like really, literally, just like that. Because um, you know, again, being so, it started in the Bronx. So I didn't know anything about it until it happened on the radio. Because Brooklyn and the Bronx back then, the Bronx, it might as well have been another country. Right. You know. Because of just the distance, or you would just never go there, or I was, I was too young, right? You know, I was like right. a baby right. when okay. it happened. Right. So it's like I couldn't go to the Bronx and experience what was going on in the parks. However, it was happening, and you saw that the, the 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 subtle changes. And then when it hit the radio, everybody got it at the same time, and then culture changed literally overnight. Like right. it went from like soul R and B rock on the radio to like electronic and like words that are not sung you know (laughs) so yeah at that time it was exciting because it was different you know imagine growing up all your life things are one way and then one day literally overnight everything changes to something else and uh growing up in that environment i think just from how we use like music to escape and uh, entertain our minds to other possibilities. I guess the social political climate as well uh, played a backdrop to that because as you move forward from the 70s to the 80s, you get to the Reagan era, Reaganomics, trickle down, all that good stuff, the crack epidemic, so on. I mean, the, the narrative between the reality and what we were using to escape from that were like hand in glove and that had a direct effect on everyone. So, I mean, even so much from, you know, what you listen to, what you wear, who you hang out with, types of parties, so on and so forth. Uh, By the time I got to high school, I was like, you know, anti everything. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, because this is what I'm feeding, being fed, you know, like, this is not going to work for you. That's not going to work for you. And you need to be this way, that way. So the thing that I think brought out the artistic side of me was that climate and the energy of it. What I was being told is not possible. And then when I discovered dance music, I was like, that's all BS, man. Anything is possible. And I could express myself and be who I am, and people will love it because that's the general nature of people. It's like, you know, when you meet someone, you want to experience them, not your idea of them. Uh And then you usually, you know, have a connection from that. So, yeah, I think the early years of... um, Hip-hop, electro, inspired a lot of what I did then and even still now because I still make hip-hop tracks and I still do, like, weird out there stuff for myself. 
just from my own mental well-being. You know, that influence never went away. So what you're saying is there was something about hip-hop and the kind of culture around it and the scene and having to conform maybe to certain things that meant that you didn't feel like you could express yourself musically? Well, yeah, because hip-hop is music of the people, man. You know, and that's, that's probably the only place you can stand on a soapbox and be honest. I mean, today is a lot different because it's a different world. Mm-hmm. And um, it is not so much a soapbox kind of thing. It's more of um, what the music industry started out being, which is a lot different from what our ideas of it is now. Mm-hmm. So I would say back then when... For example, you take a group like Public Enemy, it's a public service announcement, as where today, you know, there are no public enemies in the sense of the general consciousness. It's a part of history. It happened, but those moments are there and we're here and it's a different world. And what is taking that place? And then that's up to anyone to decide because there's so many different ways to look at it now. Mm. So you hear Planet Rock. I mean, how does thing, how do things change for you? You you start investigating this new music. You start. Well, I mean, Planet Rock, in comparison to what was being played, let's say, like on WBLS, which is a New York station, one hundred seven point five. Man, never forget that. It was different. I mean, you you going from hearing the Isley Brothers, Earth, Wind & Fire, to this all-electronic expression. Like, it was alien at the time. But it resonated on a level that at least gave me the inclination, like, anything is possible. Because before that, it didn't exist, or at least it wasn't present in front of people on, you know, on a general consciousness level. And then it just appeared. And everything changed. So it's like, yeah, anything is possible. Was a part of that that, you know, pop, rock, soul, it's made by bands. It's this idea that you have to be this kind of diamond in the rough talent to kind of make it. Whereas this was people from the hood making music with computers that was kind of more accessible. Well, it's exactly that. Because before it was all bands. And then it wasn't. And today it's even more so where it's like you even have now AI making music for you, you know? So it's like, you know, we have to really look at like the time period. We are literally talking about the 20th century. Yeah. And I know that we're almost 20 years into the 21st century. Now, just think about that for a second. 20th century. 21st century. What is a century? (laughs) You dig where I'm going with this? And then decades, almost two decades into the 21st. So if you look at the period when that happened, we were thinking in terms of like Buck Rogers flying cars and being able to travel to other planets. Now the 21st century, there are people actually working to make that happen. Yeah. You know, like SpaceX and all these different things, you know, like supercomputers in our pockets and stuff. Let's go back. 
Planet Rock. So do you see the correlation? Sure. Sure. Yeah, man. That's why then and now, anything is possible. It's just a matter of staying true to yourself, seeing your vision through to its conclusion. Nice. I mean, uh, let's talk about your kind of early rave experiences, dance floor experiences in New York. Was it a case that kind of house music became popular among your social scene and so you started going along to things or were you seeking this stuff out on your own? It happened for me first in high school, going to hooky parties and stuff like that. Then I, I think the turning point was um, listening to DJ Disciple Thursday nights on college radio, taping his show. It was him, Stretch and Bobbito. That would be my music for the week. I would stay up all night and just record both shows, and then all week long just listen to that going to school. I didn't think anyone else that I knew was into it. And, you know, to be quite honest, when I started seeing folks coming to school, dressing a certain way, looking a certain way, I'm like, oh okay, this might be, or it might be some common ground with some folks who might have experienced something. I didn't think of it in a way that was, you know, like so well thought out as at the moment, you know, you see something that's familiar and you're attracted to it. Yeah, I wound up like, you know, sharing my findings on the radio with some friends and stuff like that. And one of my best friends at the time, cousin, was um, in a group called Craze. They made the record called Let's Play House, and he was like, yo, dude, my cousins are performing at the Alphabet Club, um, um, Pyramid, I'm sorry, in Alphabet City. And I'm like, okay. And we went there. They put us on a guest list. First time I didn't know what a guest list was, it was, that was it. And I was too young to go to a club at that time, but because we were on a guest list, it's like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) That was my first experience. And from that point on, I started gradually going to clubs like every week. And then it got to a point where it was like Sunday to Sunday. Really? (laughs) Yeah, because I I was much younger, way more athletic, and I loved to dance. So when was the, what age was the Alphabet City? Oh man, I was like 19. Okay. So, you know. And what were you hearing? What were you hearing there? Um, Well, there was. well, of course, immediately when I, like, he told me who his, his cousins were, I'm like, okay, well, then what are they doing? With, and what, what's that music? So it was them. And then, of course, I was listening to DJ Disciple, who played a lot of uh, early Kerry Chandler, okay. which was like his, w- one of my favorite projects of his was um, D.D. Brave. And I loved all of that. Because it resembled a lot of um, like R- a mixture of R and B, hip hop overtones, but all danceable. And Casio wear stuff was like crazy. I would like worship that sort of thing. And um, you know, this was the music I was like really into. So going out with my friend at the time it's like anywhere that doesn't have that we're not going but everywhere that has that is where we're going and this was kept us on a hunt we would go looking like literally in people's backyards and stuff like that you know it was it was crazy but it was um probably the first thing that 
kind of gave me a deeper look to how meaningful music can be and how if you keep an open mind to different forms of how enriching it can be for yourself because, I mean, I wouldn't imagine going to nightclubs dancing just because, just because. And this is like a part of my life experience, you know? Like, I draw a lot of inspiration from those days. Right, of course. I mean, yeah, I guess before that, in terms of seeing music live, it's kind of, you know, a, a two-hour concert or you see someone play on the street or something. This idea of dancing for eight, nine hours is totally... Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, you have to think about it. Like, you know, you, you experience music, like, in those days on television, like music videos and stuff like that. And I never aspired to anything like that. You know, I mean, it's cool, it's entertainment, but I didn't aspire to, like, be in a music video or anything <laughs> like that. So the idea of being in a dark place, strobe lights, blaringly loud music dancing until my clothes are completely drenched you couldn't pay me to believe that but <laughs> i did it you know who were some of the early djs in new york who really moved you oh man um in the early years i would have to say junior vasquez um so what, frankie knuckles what period is this roughly oh uh, we're talking like early sound factory okay He's a, he was like one of the residents there and that was the Friday night spot because if you got flyers, you could show up and get in for free before 12 o'clock. And myself, all my friends really abused <laughs> the flyer system. Like, we'd be the first, we would be standing like around the corner and waiting for them to, like, you know, come to the door, literally open the club to be the first ones online. Get in there. There is nobody in there, you know. And we would be those guys, like, every week. And you know, interestingly enough, when um, the Whistle song came out, I heard, first the very first place I heard it was on DJ Disciples' show. And he was playing an acetate, and you could tell because you can hear the feedback of it. Then the second place I heard it was in the sound factory, and it sounded like that very same acetate because you could hear the feedback from it. And I, and I mean, I knew the difference between a finished record and that. And I'm like, you know, I knew this wasn't out yet. Like, you couldn't just go get it. So it felt special, you right. know, in those moments. There were a lot of moments like that for me at the sound factory it was one of my favorite places to go nice so at this point you were already buying records nope no i had no interest in collecting being a dj none of that stuff crossed my mind i'm just going out living life and right. enjoying the moment and so this sense of being a musician wasn't something even when you're involved in hip-hop and stuff it wasn't something you were never interested in making that your life there was no sense that this could be done well, that came a little bit later because I had stopped going out to clubs. Life got real. I graduated and had to get a job. Right. So when that happened, I realized how much I missed going out clubbing, and that's when I started buying records because I wanted, the, I needed the music all the time. Um, when I did collect these records, I made these mixtapes, and because I mean I've DJed since I was like fifteen. Okay. You know, but. You know, not professionally, just for family, friends around my neighborhood and stuff like that. 
because it was something that was always in my family. Like my dad did it and uh -huh. stuff like that. So to make a long story short, um, I, I started buying records and making these tapes. And I would listen to these tapes all the time, share them with my friends and stuff. And I always feel like, you know, there's something missing. Like this, this should be a bridge between this song and that song, but that song doesn't exist. But I know what that song sounds like. Mm. And that was the early seed that was planted in my brain somehow <laughs> through universal consciousness, <laughs> I guess. And that started the ball rolling in that way. Eventually, I would get some equipment because I, you know, I did a lot of wild stuff in my younger years. And um, I, I bought a keyboard and a sampler. Uh, Korg 01W and then an Akai S950 sampler and a Tascam Porter Studio, which is like a four track multi recorder that you would do on cassette. So you can imagine how messy that sounds. However, I was able to take the first step and, you know, put some ideas down. And my, like, my very first tracks were like house tracks. But then an opportunity came to get like some free studio time. It was kind of like this contest. So my cousin came to me with this and because he, he knew I had some equipment. And he was like, dude, man, if we do this, we get some studio time, make a much better this. And I'm like, sure. You know, idea of, of not having to pay for studio time was very attractive because, you know, they obviously have way better stuff than I did. We tried it. And even though that scenario didn't work out, I met the guy who mentored me in production through that situation. Right. Amazing. So, yeah, it was deep. It was, again, the universal consciousness, man. And I mean, this um, obsession with production that you kind of find yourself in now, is that something that just struck you from, from the start? I, okay. At that time, I was operating basically on instinct, mm -hmm. just what I felt, what I feel, etc. I didn't have um, any idea of philosophy of how or what that is. It's just the power of music and what that does to me. And I didn't know that it would shape my way of thinking and motivations as time went on. But now, many years later, I realized, like, yeah, this thing is shaping my motivations, the things that I do in life is based on this energy. So I couldn't say I knew that. It's just, it happened. But did you feel that kind of, when you sat down to make those first tracks, did you think, wow, I actually really feel comfortable doing this. This, this in some, even though I don't necessarily know exactly what I'm doing, this in some sense, I'm getting something from it. This feels like me. No, I, I, it always seemed like it's just something I'm supposed to do. That's right. it. Like, this is what you're, you're supposed to do. So if you feel like there's something missing and you know what it is, you're supposed to put it. Interesting. You know, that kind of thing. You were part of, in the early 2000s, you've mentioned a kind of uh, broken beat new jazz scene in New York, which is interesting because, I you know, people talk a lot about the scene in London. I didn't realize there was something kind of similar going on in New York. You want to talk a little bit about that? Okay. Well, to put that in perspective, uh, all the credit to any kind of influence from new jazz, broken beat, 
has to go to J-Lock because this guy, who is one of my best friends, worked at um, Dance Tracks in New York. And in my opinion, you know, is one of the most innovative thinkers in terms of selection when it comes down to new things. At the time, New York scene was soulful, deep, etc. There wasn't anyone really bridging the gap between that and what was going on in West London. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody had any clue. He was the only person saying, with a giant neon sign, look at this. Listen, this is how this works. I'm going to do it in front of you. And in the story, he would just be making music with these records. And people would pick up on it. He, I believe he's the catalyst for that. There were many others that that did assist in that. Like there was this uh, party called Hamsa that had a heavy emphasis on new um, innovative music, different music, and they played a lot of IG, a lot of um, G-Force, Modaji, things of that nature mm-hmm. that wasn't particularly the big room idea, but they were like really um, blazing a trail for new music in New York, and that was very exciting for me. But yeah, J-Lock was the guy who turned me on to For Hero, IG, Seji, Domu, uh, everyone that I love today, I mean, I still love all of that music today. You know, I mean, Four Heroes is a huge inspiration for me because mm-hmm. if you look at New Jazz, Broken Beat, it has, I believe, for me, in my opinion, it has at its nucleus a part of um, the idea of what hip-hop could have been in its golden era. Interesting. Because of the musicality, but yet the rawness of the broken drum. You know what I mean? The syncopation and the soulful aspect of slapping the bass line with, you know, rich Moog-like textures. You know what I mean? I mean, it it reminded me of future hip-hop, but Mm. in a danceable form. But, you know, that was just my take on it. And... The inspiration I got from that caused me to go even deeper into my own expression. So, yeah. You know, you're kind of one of the poster boys for, like, the classic Deep House sound. I mean, when did this... Was your music always like that? Was it always very rich, very musical, very emotional chords? Is that something that... Where do you kind of trace that back to? That comes down, again... I gotta give credit to my man Jay Lock because the thing is, like, there was a period where um, I stopped doing music for like two years. It was a, it was a very dark time, like you know, it was dark. But uh, he had, you know, gone some travels in Europe and compiled a ton of music, and he comes back, and I'm on my way to work one day, and again, this is a very cosmic moment. Like I'm on my way to work. And we hadn't seen each other in a while. And I run into him, and we reconnect. He starts coming by my job and bringing me these compilation tapes. And on it, it's everything from Detroit techno to, like, 
deep house to drum and bass to ambient, new jazz, broken beat, experimental, all types of things. And I had no equipment. I had nothing. I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting on some crates, no turntables, just sitting on some crates. Right. And I would listen to these cassettes going home, and it just kind of reconnected me. Like, you know why you don't feel great? It's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. If something's missing, you put it in the spot right. that it's missing. So what did I do? I, I, I started saving money, and it wasn't as easy to acquire equipment this time. I had to learn the value of why it is, you know, you do this. And um, piece by piece, started getting back into it and realizing what it is I liked from everything that I was listening to, like what resonated the most, and that's when I began to start focusing on the more emotional aspects of stuff because that's really where, for me, that's where the substance is. Interesting. So you were making music, and then for whatever reason, life got in the way and you stopped for two years. And in your mind, that was kind of, you just, you'd left making music behind. Well, I didn't have the foresight to realize that, you know, there's more to life than meets the eye because, you know, how can you leave a part of yourself behind? You can't really, like, do that. It's like, I'm going to go across the street and leave my leg over there. <laughs> you know, it kind of doesn't work like that. And that was a clear case of that. So when you when you came back to it, that's what you realized had happened? You kind of... I recognize a part of myself, and life looked different. Amazing. And again, this is at a period, I have no inclination to make a record, make a project, call myself anything other than what my name is, or DJ, still, no, no, this was just for me, the being, the person, to like feel a connection to this realm, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I don't know, take anything that you do naturally and then take it away. Yeah. You're going to feel a certain way. And however that turns out is going to affect other areas of your life. So it's like when that thing returns, you feel like, ooh, this is the way it's supposed to be. So It's interesting. I guess, I mean, like, we're not all artists. We probably maybe don't all have that. But you kind of had, it's like, kind of like, you know, an artist it takes a certain amount of time for them to discover this craft or whatever it is that brings them this this kind of complete feeling. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Right. I mean, I, I agree with you, like, the the, uh, the attention to identify these things, yeah, you go a bit deeper than the average person, but I believe everyone has something sure. in their life that they can identify with that particular phenomena. It doesn't necessarily have to be... Uh, an artistic expression. It could be an expression towards humanitarianism or sure. an expression towards uh, architecture. It's like a part of you that feels natural in doing a certain process. You know, I mean, it can be as basic as like what you eat in the morning. If you stop having coffee, that's going to make you feel a certain way. But then you bring it back, it makes you feel another way. So... You know, it's just how deep do you want to go into your own experience, I would say. 
when was it that you realised that that music could be a profession and this could go to the next level in that respect? I would say when I moved to Berlin, actually. Because yeah. to be honest with you, okay, Reactions of Light came out in 2007. Now, that was supposed to be the last thing I was ever going to do with music, period. Why, why was that? Because I realized that I wasn't going to be able to make a living doing it. And I'm like, screw it. I got to go get like a government job. And the easiest government job to get is at the post office. Because the rumor is, if you work at the post office, you can drink on the job. So that was my life goal, believe it or not. And it's, I mean, it's amazing how it didn't work out that way. (laughs) Looking back, yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. But... At the time, it seemed practical, um, given what my life goals were. It's like, I just, you know, because the thing is, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, what made me feel best, and and made me want to strive to be better, and that was just creating. And at the time, digital was taking over, uh, CDs were on the decline, and at that time, I didn't realize what was the mechanism behind these two things and the effect that they have on sustainability as far as a business model goes. I mean, I had no clue. All I knew is as I was still looking at it from a consumer's perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you mean to tell me I don't have to buy the entire CD? I can just, like, pick the tracks mm-hmm. that I like? And... You know, from that perspective, yeah, it's an advantage. But then if you had to look at it from the perspective of the artist or the person running the label, that's a huge detriment because now you're fragmenting a product. Sure. Sure. So when I saw what that looked like on paper after doing some digital releases, I'm like, I can't even pay a phone bill with this. Sure. So... I'm dedicating this amount of hours and it's not equaling to the value that I'm putting in. So maybe I should go work at the post office. Okay. And then I could do it on my own time. So I guess DJing wasn't what was going on then. Were you playing at all? Well, uh, no. I was doing like little small things. I had an internet radio show I'd been doing for a few years. And, um, you know, every now and again, I would pop up at like a record shop. Like I used to play music at uh, Liquid Sky when it was open, you know, and, you know, stuff like that. But nothing um, like professionally. But when Reactions to Light came out, I have to say, I did get my f- very first professional gig. Big up to E-Man for <laughs> doing that for me. I played his party, and two people showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was my... I thought, okay, well, that was it. That was my career. It came and went in one night. Now I can, like, really focus on the post office. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I guess yours is a kind of classic story in the way, in the terms of the way the industry changed and that, you know, one day producers could make a decent living just from their music and the next day they couldn't. And the only way to support making music would be to go out and DJ for the I most part. I didn't even know that. That's the thing. I like, right. I, I mean, there was no plan 
whatsoever. Like, I had no clue to that, period. Like, I didn't know nothing about getting on any plane, passport, <laughs> none of that. All I thought was, okay, you make a product, people consume it, and you you either break even or you make some profit. You make some profit, you could make another project. That's what I thought. I had no idea, none whatsoever. Interesting, but I mean, you'd you'd seen these. I guess you. So I guess you th- having you know, obviously, you were a fan of these DJs. Um, I guess you thought that was one world, and I guess you thought what you did was a completely separate thing. Totally, that's exactly what I thought. Because the, the thing is, like, at the time, you still had like you know mixed compilations stuff like that, and I loved those because there was a period where I couldn't afford to buy records, and that was the only way I could stay in the loop somehow and know what was going on. And I would buy, like, um, you know, Mix the Vibe, you know, stuff like that. Um, um, I would get, like, you know, Ministry of Sound CDs, you know, you know, Body and Soul CDs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would follow, like, whatever I could find on the DJs that were doing that. And, um, but I never aspired to it. Because, I mean, it was something I did at home. I did it on the internet, you know. I didn't think that that was a profession possible for me. Your first gigs in Europe were in Germany, is that right? Yes. With Move D? Yeah, at Cube, Heidelberg. Nice. Was that, um, by that point, were you kind of more established as a DJ, or was or was that another kind of well, opening experience? I had a show of Motion FM, and Big Up to Panos, that show was very important for me because the thing is, I did it religiously and it was definitely a love thing because the music that I was playing, it was all things that were feeding me life. Like we're going to go beyond any artistic aspiration. So it's like what you need to hear to make you feel okay in life. That's what the music was doing for me. And it was... Um, you know, Move D shows up at pretty much every show, and I, I had no clue who he was. All I knew was his music. It was like a lot of Dial stuff, Lawrence, someone, you know, like all the people I know and love today were was whose music I was playing. And, you know, I, I never thought in any of that experience to include my own stuff, just what gave me life at sure. that time so it wasn't something i thought about i didn't think anybody was actually listening you know i'm just contributing to a much bigger thing yeah. you know and that was it and i left it at that i didn't like you know really think what, how that would transpire i mean did that have something to do with it oh i think it was a little bit of that and then i did this record um when um so People Music became a physical label, and the, um, there was a record on my first EP as Fred P. called Every Day that became mm-hmm. uh, a popular movie. He liked it, and that was, I guess, interesting enough to bring. And that's my first trip to Europe ever. Right. Had to get my passport renewed. Man. <laughs> It was cool, though, because it's like, this is going to be my one stamp. <laughs> right. I mean, were you, when you were making music initially and 
before and after the kind of darker period were you were you bouncing off other people I sound I feel like maybe you were just making it and it was kind of going out there and there wasn't much feedback coming back in or were you did you have a sense that you were good at this thing I always share my music with my man Jay we would like like maybe once or twice a week get together at his place and we would just first we would listen to all the new stuff he acquired, like, you know, things that he thought was interesting. And then we would listen to my stuff and, you know, he would give me subtle critiques or harsh critiques, you know, uh, about it. And, you know, he would give me food for thought, which was very valuable at that time. Because the thing is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to, like, say, I'm going to make something and present it to people back then. Today, it's very easy now. That's not even in the general consciousness anymore. Like, the idea of hubris doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But back then, because there are so many luminaries with such a high level of quality, to say you're going to present something right. is daunting. And he would give me really, really good food for thought without changing my perspective of how to go about it, you know? Because, like, someone could tell you, you know, one thing, and it makes you change the way you do everything, and then sure. you don't sound like you. Or they can kind of give you an idea of what to look at and make better without telling you how to go about that, which is way more liberating because then you begin to have a better way of thinking. For sure. It's just about guiding the person to make those decisions themselves. Yeah. So I, I got to get, I got to big up my man, Jay, for that because he was always there in the early years. Like I shared, like, all the really super raw, like before reactions of like, like the stuff that, like, was like, you know, would make you make a face and confusion as to what that is type of stuff. You know, to this day, actually, to this day, I still share my music with him. He's like one of maybe two or three people I do that with. Okay. And was he the only person back then because you felt self-conscious about it and you felt nervous to share it with people? No. It's just, I, I knew nobody else was going to understand. But I knew he understood because he's the one who, like turn me back on to it so it's like okay this is someone I could trust to at least be you know be a blank slate and just tell me the truth like am I am I going too deep into my own language and he would always say the right thing that would define it clearly so that way I could present the best perspective that I could. Amazing. I think you sort of touched on it in your last answer, but something you said last year, um, with the technology we have now, dance music should be somewhere else completely. And I guess just to finish, I wanted to kind of expand on that. It's an interesting statement. Um, I think the thing that's missing from dance music right now is musicality. There's a lot less orchestration, arrangement, songwriting. All those things seem to have disappeared and I attempt to touch on that with this album, like, you know, bringing in musicians and doing some arrangements. All these things are kind of subtle because 
you know, I, I'm still in the evolutionary process myself, but I believe that uh, songs with words are important. I believe that not relying so much on the computer is important. However, turning the computer itself into an instrument as instead of it being the means of it. Because ultimately, before things became so automated, before things became um, so digital, incredible, life-altering, types of music was being made with people with just their hands, with just their voices, with just the inspiration. So why are things less warm now? Why are things less moving now? Now, there's lots of beautiful moving things. However, you have the technology literally in your pocket yeah. to go anywhere why not exploit that so that's what i meant by that because i mean i mean if you think about again the 21st century we thought cars would be flying and people would be teleporting from one part of the earth to the other <laughs> you know that kind of thing now that might not necessarily be the reality at this moment but in theory thought wise you can say what you think, and someone on the other side of the planet can respond to you in real time. That is a huge step for humanity. So if we look in terms of music, I don't say everything has to be like hyper-complicated or super-intricate. However, musically, we can be saying a lot more. So as well as the kind of advancements in technology, is this also coming from you just listening to dance music these days and just not being so impressed just your usual i don't know maybe your usual labels artists or or just generally stuff you hear when you're out in clubs just not being so it's fear man that's all it's fear you you find something that works and you, you stick to it instead of like being fearless and just trying something that you know could fail terribly but that's usually where the dopest stuff comes from, is when you let it all hang out, you know? So Well, now we're in this strange phase where, you know, you were a producer who, who couldn't make it work because you weren't a DJ, but now the best way to make it as a DJ is to be a producer and to get a tune out there. But these... Funny how that works out. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I mean, I figure, you know, if, if it's like... Like a blind man being a carpenter, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because the thing is, it's like, again, when I first started making music, making products, there was none of that. I had no clue of that. And now this is my primary way of doing my thing. And it turned me into, I think, I guess, an, you know, an adequate DJ. I mean, I, other people would have to judge. But it's funny how that works out. You know, one feeds the other. And I'm grateful that it does because, yeah, that's what I love to do. I love to make records. I love to make albums. I love to create sonic things and find ways for it to make sense for the people that like to listen to what I do, you know? And in some cases, there's, there's a majority of music that I make that only gets heard in the club. And then in some cases, there's music 
that comes out that I never play in the club, you know? But I mean, if I didn't have that facility, what would my reality look like? Mm -hmm.